Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We continue this series on restore. Remember we said that God wants to take a broken people, us, and restore us spiritually so that we can be in that place where he alone is master of our lives so that he would then draw others to himself through us. Chapter 9 is a confession of the people of God as Nehemiah and Ezra have led the people to look at the word of God and begin to reinstitute and celebrate some of the feasts and festivals and then to come to this place of a national corporate confession of sin. When I was a a kid, we used to go to Florida occasionally to visit the cousins. And if you had cousins and you got to visit them about once every three years, you you just had a party the whole time. We went one time, and uh, I was kind of the middle, but I was uh, one of the younger ones, and uh, there were probably six, eight of us, and uh, the family was together, and we took off to do some exploring, and basically, I just meant to see what kind of trouble we could get into, and uh, we, I don't remember where we went, I think it was a golf course, so we, we ended up in this culvert, and we got all messed up and dirty, and we went, and as we're going back, we realized we're all going to be in trouble, so the older cousins concocted this story about what had happened, and all of the younger cousins are supposed to say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Basically, they, they said, we're all going to lie to our parents. So I was a follower at that time, so I was good to go with that. So we walk in the room, and all the older cousins make it past the parents to the back of the house, except some of the younger ones are coming through. And uh, the parents stopped us and said, where have you been? Well, we knew what we were supposed to say, and I was kind of formulating how much of this I can say, and my younger cousin, Sandra, says this, I can't tell a lie, and she told him exactly what we had been doing. And you know, I was so mad at her, and the older cousins definitely were mad at her, but she really, all she was doing was telling our parents what they knew already, that we'd been messing around in a place we didn't need to be, and she just fessed up. She agreed with her mom and dad and the rest of the parents that we had been doing what we shouldn't do. That's what confession is. You know, most of the time, our parents knew what we were up to. And our confession was just agreeing with them. Do you know that all the time, our Heavenly Father knows what we're up to? And we think we can hide from Him, but confession is just agreeing with God about where we are. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter 9. I encourage you to. By the way, this chapter is a summary of of the the history of the nation of Israel. It starts with Abram and works its way all the way through this time of of, uh, difficulty that the children of Israel find themselves in. But I just want to jump ahead to verse 32. In the midst of uh, Nehemiah and the people confessing their sin, listen to the, the statement, this agreeing with God. After they've discussed everything God has done for them and everything they've done. Now, so now our God the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. That's a good reminder, isn't it? Do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. Those Assyrians are the ones that had come and captured the northern kingdom. 
You are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, that's the promised land, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Verse 36, here we are today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Now they remember they had been taken captive by the Assyrians and then later the southern kingdom by the Babylonians and now some of them are coming back and even though they're restored to the land, they're still really under the control of the, of the wicked pagan Babylonians and Persians at this time. But here we are in our land that you gave us, we're slaves. It's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us Because of our sins, they rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. That's a confession, isn't it? Reminding God of the mess they've gotten themselves into because they're reminding themselves. So I want us to look at three key truths this morning. First of all, here's how we agree with God. Here's one of what I found to be one of the best ways to approach him. Begin by rehearsing God's activity. Number one, rehearse God's activity. Remind yourself and yourselves about what God has been doing. This entire chapter 9 begins with Abram's call. It goes through the the pharaohs and how they were uh, rescued by Moses into the to come to the promised land and how they wandered in the desert and then ultimately were given the promised land. Rehearse God's activity. And I I have several bullet points that that they rehearsed of God's activity. First of all, they reminded themselves that God is faithful. God is faithful. Even in this one small section that I read there, verse 33, you are righteous concerning all that has come. Because, uh, verse 33 there, that has come on us, because you have acted faithfully. God is faithful. When you are about to come before God and you start to look at the activity of God in your life, start there. God, you're a faithful God. You have been faithful. Secondly, they rehearse this truth that God is compassionate. God is compassionate. He begins in verse 32 there, or this one section, about the the great and mighty, awe-inspiring God. But I want you to backtrack to verse 19 with me. Listen to this description of a compassionate God that they serve. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. Because of your great compassion. Not because they were great. Not because they were special. But because of God's great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them. It guided them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. Remember the story? As they're in the wilderness, God guided them. Whenever the cloud moved, they moved. Whenever the cloud stopped, they stopped. He says, you sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years and lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. I love that line. You gave them kingdoms and peoples assigned to them to be boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon and the king of Heshbon in the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the heaven and brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go in to take possession of it. Because of his great compassion, God allowed them to do that. Skip all the way to verse 31 with me. 
However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious, compassionate God. Whenever you are broken, whenever God speaks to you, challenges you, convicts you of sin, start there. Start with this understanding that you have no right to stand before a mighty God, but because of his grace and his compassion, there you are. Isn't it great if you caught the theme of this morning's worship? Grace, compassion. It's the way God works. One of my favorite movies every Christmas is The Christmas Story. Little Ralphie wanting that Red Ryder BB gun. You know the story? Well, there's one scene in the movie where he loses it and he... uh, uh, beats up one of the, the kids in school and his mom hears him shouting all these profanities that he learned from his father, by the way. And she takes him home and she washes his mouth out with a bar of soap. I, I had that experience when I was a kid. I remember it vividly. And that's his punishment. That's, his, that's, that's the mom saying, you shouldn't have done that. And then, in her grace and compassion, she doesn't tell the dad about it. I'm not advocating that you do that. But it's a great picture. It's a great picture that mom knew that he'd done wrong, knew that he deserved some kind of discipline, but but in grace didn't make it worse than it could have been. That's God. He's compassionate God. Third truth about his activity, he intervenes. Did you see this through this passage? In the midst of all that they had done, God still was intervening. God still rescued. God still delivered. God still provided. Even putting those boundaries of the other nations around them. And then God protects He protects. Look at verse 24. So their descendants went and possessed the land. You, God, you subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. God protected his people. Rehearse God's activity. That's a good place to start. The same God who did all that for them in his grace and compassion wants to do all that for us. We talked about this last week. If you will go through your life and look at how God has, has worked in your life, it's a, it's a cause for celebration. And, and I just would summarize God's activity. as a, It's been an activity of grace, demonstrating his grace to the community of people, his people. I read recently, a few years ago in, in Boise, Idaho, a group of churches got together and decided to show grace to the community. Several businesses put together money. They came up with about $10,000. And several pastors set up tables outside the, the, the courthouse. And here's what they said. We're going to pay your parking tickets for you until the money runs out. Isn't that interesting? Some people said that was poor stewardship, but listen to what they did. They said, in order for you to receive the money, you have to admit that you were wrong. And we'll write a check. And they wrote checks until those parking tickets were paid and they ran out of money. I love that. We're going we're gonna to show you grace. You deserve to pay this ticket yourself. We're going to pay that ticket for you. But in order to get it, you're going to have to admit that you were wrong. What a great picture. What a great sermon they preached. Rehearse God's activity. Secondly, recognize our own sinfulness. This is that fessing up. This is that admitting that we're wrong. Recognize our own sinfulness. And I've got three uh, pictures of of just bullet points of what it looks like for us to in our sinfulness. First of all, we give in to the lure of sin. 
We give in to the lure of sin. Some would say that's the allure. It is, but it's also the lure of sin. Sin hooks us and pulls us in. As you read this entire chapter, over and over again, the people say that we were disobedient. Verse 26, we disobeyed, we rebelled. We committed blasphemies, but you rescued us. We give in to the lure of sin. I was looking this week of that picture of that snapping turtle that stays under the water. It's, a, it's a, called an alligator turtle, and it opens its mouth up like this and sits perfectly still, and its tongue has two little deals that they look like worms. You seen that picture? And here's this turtle's mouth, and it looks like these two little worms here. You know what he's doing? He's baiting those fish that swim by and say, hey, there's a worm. That's a picture. That's a picture of sin. The Bible describes this lure of sin as a snare. Hold that place in Nehemiah 9 and look with me at Proverbs chapter 7. I can remember where I was when I, when I discovered this passage. Probably read it all my life. But look at verse 21. This is the story of seduction. And, and the picture here is of, a, of, a, of an immoral woman luring a man into adultery. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures him with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. What a picture. Do you see the picture there that Satan has put this trap out and specifically the writer of Proverbs is referring to sexual sin, how, how the enemy puts this trap out there and, and there's this pleading to come and experience this, it's gonna be good. By the way, Satan doesn't show up as a, a pitchfork, red-horned animal. He pictures himself as something beautiful and desirous. That's, that's what, that's what the, the, the writer of Proverbs is saying. And the trap is set and we're drawn in to that lure of sin. We're captured. I read a story about a bunch of pelicans, 30 or so of them. They found them on the, out there in the desert in Arizona, kind of dehydrated and staggering around. Well, here's what they discovered happened. These pelicans were, were looking for food, and, and they, they were desperate because of a drought. And they're flying over the Arizona highway, and they see this beautiful lake, and they think, here's a meal. And these 30 or so brown pelicans swoop down to dive into the water. You ever been in the desert when it's hot? You ever look out and see on the asphalt what looks like water, and it's not? And these pelicans came crashing down on the asphalt thinking it was a lake, and it wasn't. That's, that's what sin is. It, it, that's the picture of that lure. It looks, boy, here's this refreshing lake we land on. It's nothing but hot asphalt. We give in to the lure of sin. And secondly, we compromise. We compromise. If you'll walk through this passage of Scripture and the rest of the Old Testament, you will see that the people of God were lured in and they gave in. That's the way it works. They were lured in and they gave in little by little. I don't believe... The children of Israel said, I think we will rebel against God. Now, there may have been some who did. We have evidence that some did. 
It's like the person says, I think I'm going to destroy my marriage. It doesn't work that way. It's subtle. It's slow. And we begin to give. We begin to yield. Compromise. And then ultimately we rebel and disobey. That's the picture in the garden. If you'll read the story in Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw the fruit. She desired the fruit. She took the fruit. And she ate the fruit. That's the way sin works. We have to recognize that's who we are. Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our, to our own way. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you want God to do a work in your life, maybe you've been praying for healing or restoration of a family or restoration of relationships and you're pleading with God, why don't you start with recognizing your own sinfulness? Say, God, I am, I am the person who has sinned. I want to agree with you about that. I've yielded to the, to the lure of sin and I've compromised and I've given in. God, forgive me. Recognize your own sinfulness. And then in this passage, we see the people responding to God's discipline. Number three, respond to God's discipline. Here's what he did and here's what he does. God gives us warnings. God gave them and he gives us warnings. Again, in Nehemiah chapter 9, let's just sort of walk through. Look at verse 26 with me. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. The prophets came to warn the people. Do you remember the history we've talked about? The, the people of God were struggling. They were, the kings were leading them into idolatry. And God sent the prophets and said, be careful, God's going to judge you. And they didn't listen. And so the, the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. And then those prophets continued to preach. And God raised up new prophets and said, if you don't repent, if you don't, re- if you don't turn back to God, the enemy's going to come and they're going to take you away. And they didn't listen. They didn't repent. And God sent the Babylonians and took them into captivity. God sent his prophets to warn them. Look at verse 29. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly, arrogantly, and they would not obey your commands. You warned them to turn back. They stubbornly resisted, that passage says. Look at verse 30. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. One of the things that you you need to remember as you study the Bible is repetition is there to emphasize. How many times in this passage does, do, do the people of God say, God, you warned us, you warned us, you warned us, you warned us. God warns us. Be careful. The prophets of that day warned the people of God. We need to be prophets today warning people to turn back to him. I read a story about a school crossing guard in Florida, so frustrated that, that the people would not heed his warnings, and the cars just kept coming and going faster and wouldn't slow down, so finally this crossing guard went and got a, a hair dryer and stood there on his crosswalk and pointed the hair dryer at cars coming at him, and they all slowed down. They thought it was a radar gun. The warning, isn't it amazing how those warnings slow us down? 
That's what God's doing. That's what he wants to do with us. I believe that part of just God's prompting to go through this Restore series is God saying to us, to his people, I want to give you a warning that we can't continue to live where we're the center of the universe, where it's all about us. God gives warning. Secondly, God gives us time to repent. Verse 30 again. You were patient with them for many years. Now, I don't know about you, but if they were dependent on me to be patient with them, it wouldn't have been many years, right? But God was patient with them. By the way, he's patient with you. You know, one of the things I'm most thankful for in my life I'm thankful for my salvation. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the ministry God's called me to. But constantly I seem to keep going back to God. Thank you for being patient with me until I finally got it. I'm so glad he didn't give up on me. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not... Is, does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Aren't you glad he waited on you? But there does come a time when God delivers his discipline. The last point there. God delivers his discipline. Look at verse 27. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. You handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. By the way, those enemies that God used to oppress the people were really not just God disciplining them, but God showing them that he would stop their sin in order that they could turn to him, in order that they could experience an abundant life. In Hebrews chapter 12, Speaking of that discipline that God gives to his people. Listen to this, verse 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Punishes every son he receives. God disciplines the one he loves. We need to agree with God that he's a holy God and we're a sinful people. And we need to say, God, you're right and we're wrong. God, you love me. You're patient with me. And I turn my back on you. The beginning of revival is when the people of God Not the lost world out there. They're still living in darkness. But when the people of God admit, God, we are sinful. We have turned our own way. And we need you. God wants to restore his broken people, us. So that we come come to a place in our life where he alone is master. Then he will draw people to himself. At the beginning of the 18th century, Great Britain was in a moral 
decline. Historians of the day called it a quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. Sir William Blackstone made a commitment to visit every church in England. And I don't know if he visited every one, but that's what it says. Visited every major clergyman he could come in contact with. And in that discussion, he discovered that most sermons that he heard in those churches, it would have been impossible to tell from listening to the sermons whether the preacher was a follower of Christ, Confucius, or Muhammad. Morally, the country was totally decadent. Drunkenness, just immorality. The slave trade was gaining in popularity and taking over with greed. Bishop Berkeley wrote about that immorality in England at the time, and he said it was, it was to a degree that was never known in any Christian country up to that point. Does that sound familiar? I could give you more and more details about poverty and the degradation of newborns and infants, and it was all there in England. The French Revolution was sweeping the continent and coming that way. But about that time, God raised up a man by the name of George Whitfield. He was an Anglican, Anglican priest who got saved and began preaching in London and in Bristol. And his call was to preach salvation by grace through faith. And lots of people got saved. And lots of clergy got saved. One of those clergy was a man named John Wesley. He was saved through the preaching of Whitfield and others. And Whitfield encouraged him to continue to preach. Basically, we've talked about Wesley before. They preached out in the fields because the churches wouldn't have them. Wesley traveled all over the nation, logging 250,000 miles preaching repentance, faith, and holiness. He called repentance as he said it's the porch of religion. Conviction of sin always comes before faith. And thousands upon thousands were saved. And its effects spread. And that nation, as broken and as dark as it had become, turned around. And many historians believe it was the revival through Whitfield and Wesley that stopped the anarchy of the French Revolution. And that nation became a nation of orphanages and hospitals and meeting the needs of the people and the poor. That nation was restored because of revival. That's my, that's my heart cry. I, I, could, I can scream about the darkness all day long, but I can't control the darkness. All I can say is, God, I want you to be light in my life. And let me and this congregation be light where we impact this dark world. It starts with confession. No more playing church. No more pretending. It starts with confession. God, you're God. We're not. And we humbly come before you.
confessing that. Let's pray together.